0: Okay, I think we're ready to get started. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Tim Lynch, and I'm the director of Cato's project on criminal justice. Today we want to return to the subject of gun control, and in particular, we gather to discuss uh, the recent release of the third edition of John Lott's book, More Guns, Less Crime. John says that there's more than 200 pages of new material in this third edition, uh, based upon 10 more years of uh, data which he has gathered and analyzed since the first edition came out in 1998. It was actually in this very room that John Lott's uh, thesis was initially presented and began to get some national attention. Uh, before he wrote uh, the book, he co-authored with David Mustard a paper that was to be published in an academic journal called the Journal of Legal Studies. And prior to publication, uh, John presented his thesis here and a reporter from USA Today happened to be in the audience, and when he wrote up uh, the research findings uh, by John Lott and his, and his co-author, um, the the issue just exploded. After that story appeared in the USA Today, suddenly other national media outlets started calling, and and uh, John was uh, all over the news. And the debate has just been raging ever since. And I would point out that uh, we are just days away from another landmark. Uh, Uh, ruling from the Supreme Court concerning the Second Amendment. That's a case called um, City of Chicago versus McDonald. We expect that to come down uh, probably next week or the week after. So we can expect another uh, summer of discussion and debate on uh, gun control issues. So I think that this uh, event could not be um, more timely everybody all the court watchers basically expect the Supreme Court to strike down chicago 's uh, gun control ordinances and and so uh, again, the debate is going to be raging in just, in just a matter of weeks. Uh, the mayor of Chicago, Richard Daly, says that his city 's uh, laws have helped to keep his constituents um, Safe and that violence and mayhem will come to the city of Chicago if the Supreme Court does go ahead and invalidate those gun control regulations. Now, John Lott's response to that is that uh, there's precious little evidence uh, in support of Mayor Daley's assertions. So we'll hear more about that uh, as the forum goes on. Um, I should point out that this forum is going to focus on the policy aspects of the gun control debate. John Lott's training is in economics, not constitutional law. He'll be the first one to say that. Um, His book closely examines the relationship between gun control regulations and violent crime rates. And his major research finding is that crime goes down in the jurisdictions that allow law-abiding people to keep a gun in the home for purposes of self-defense. And the crime goes down even further in the jurisdictions that allow people to carry concealed firearms uh, in public. The format uh, for today's event is straightforward. Mr. Lott is going to present his thesis for about 20 or 30 minutes. I'm then going to introduce our our guest speakers. They are going to offer comments on John's thesis for about 10 minutes each. I'm then going to return to John Lott for a very brief uh, opportunity, just about five minutes, give him a chance to respond to anything that's been said, and then we're going to take any questions and comments uh, that you may have on, on this subject. Before I take a moment and briefly introduce John Lott, let me ask uh, those of you who came with cell phones, would you please take a moment now just to double check and make sure that they are turned off uh, as a courtesy to all of our speakers. And I'd include the panelists with that. We've, we've had that happen a few times where the, the phones start ringing. Thank you. Many people are under the, mis- uh, under the mistaken impression that John Lott's career is all about guns, but that's, that's just not so. He's published dozens and dozens of articles in academic journals on topics ranging from sentencing rules for businesses and organizations to uh, professional licensing to campaign finance restrictions uh, to public education. He has also held uh, teaching posts at this country's top universities, talking about Yale, Stanford, UCLA, Wharton, Rice, and uh, other academic institutions. <coughs> He's also published five other books on a variety of topics. But he returns today to talk about his most first and most famous book, More Guns, Less Crime. So would you please welcome our first speaker, John Locke.
1: Thanks very much uh, for having me here again. I have to apologize if I'm a little slow. I had uh, just had a burst appendix last Friday, so I'm just uh, making do <coughs> as we can on this stuff. Uh, before we get into this, I'll just say that um, uh, if we were debating campaign finance today, I have a feeling that Paul and I would be on the same side. I haven't talked to him about that. Uh, you know, But... Uh, but we're talking about uh, about gun control. You know, um, it's uh, guns make it easier for bad things to happen, but they also make it easier to protect themselves. And the thing about uh, guns is, you know, we all want to try to take guns away from criminals. The problem that you have with many types of gun control. Is you have to ask yourself who's most likely to go and obey the laws, because if it turns out that it's the law-abiding good citizens who turn in their guns and not uh, the criminals, then rather than making places safe for the for the law-abiding, you will may unintentionally make it safe for the criminals who have less to worry about uh, in terms of when when they commit a crime, you know. Just as you can deter criminals with higher arrest rates or higher conviction rates or longer prison sentences, the fact that a would-be victim might be able to defend themselves also makes it riskier for the criminal to go and commit a crime. In my work, I have basically found that there are two broad groups of people who benefit the most from having guns, people relatively weaker physically, women and the elderly, and also people who are most likely to be victims of violent crime, And that overwhelmingly tends to be poor blacks who live in high-crime urban areas. It'd be great if the police were there all the time in order to try to protect them, but they're not. And the question becomes then when the police aren't there, when somebody's having to confront a violent criminal by themselves, what's the safest course of action? And I think time after time the research has shown that by far the safest course of action for a victim to take when they're having to confront a criminal by themselves is to have a gun. Now, <clears throat> let's see if I can. now there's been a lot of change uh, over the past decade since the second edition was released in, uh, in, uh, in 2000. Uh, as Tim mentioned, we've had debate over gun bans in cities such as Chicago and Washington, D.C. We've had the sunsetting of the assault weapons ban in September 2004 right to carry laws in 40 states. Only two states now completely ban people carrying concealed handguns, and one of those, uh, Wisconsin, uh, has almost changed multiple times with almost a two-third vote in the state legislature in both houses uh, twice to overturn a governor's veto, but it looks like uh, with this election, the new governor, the uh, person who's well ahead in the race, uh, would support it. Uh, And, uh, you know, in the last few years, particularly last year, uh, last uh, uh, 18 months or so, not only has there been a huge increase, a big increase in gun ownership, but there's probably been an even greater percentage increase, I would argue, in the percentage of the population with permits to carry concealed handguns. We've gone from about 5 million uh, p- permit holders to something over about 6.2 million Americans with concealed handgun permits. You have some states like uh, Pennsylvania, where you have about 700,000 people with concealed handgun permits, or some place like Florida, where you have about 729,000 people with concealed handgun permits. There have been many other changes in gun laws over the last decade, things that really weren't even being talked about. A decade ago, for example, uh, the majority of states now have uh, so-called stand-your-ground laws that make it so that when a victim using a gun defensively, they're no longer required to retreat as far as possible before they use a gun defensively. You know, often when we think about uh, constitutional cases, uh, I think the tendency for a lot of lawyers is just to think about things in terms of you know what does the Constitution say? But for better or worse, probably for worse, the uh, the Supreme Court over years has said you know it's not really black and white. You know when they say Congress shall pass no laws, when it, we're talking about the First Amendment, the Supreme Court says what we really mean is Congress shall pass no laws unless they have a really good reason to pass it. And uh, when uh, the Second Amendment says shall not uh, infringe, you know you think. You pull out your dictionary, and you read it, and it seems pretty clear what shall not infringe would mean, you would think. But uh, again, uh, the courts indicated that there's going to be what they call these balancing tests, which means that it's going to be pretty much an empirical issue, you know, how much weight they give to the costs and benefits side of guns versus the constitutional issues. You know, it's just saying, so they have different levels of tests, but it's always a tradeoff. And so... Empirical issues always come into play, and you can see this from uh, an opinion signed down by a total four the justices in the 2008 Heller case. This is dissent by uh, Justice Breyer. He said, if a resident has a handgun in the home, they can use for self-defense. Then he has a handgun in the home that he can use to commit suicide or engage in acts of domestic violence. If it is indeed the case, as the district believes that the number of guns contributes to the number of gun-related crimes, accidents, and deaths, then although there may be less restrictive, less effective substitutes for an outright ban, there's no less restrictive equivalent uh, of an outright ban. In my view, there simply is no untouchable constitutional uh, right guaranteed by the Second Amendment to keep unloaded handguns in the House in crime-ridden urban areas. And, uh, you know, you can... See, when you read through uh, Justice Breyer's strongly worded dissent, you know, the hymn, the Second Amendment doesn't guarantee an individual's right to own the gun. Uh, you have these public interest concerns reducing gun crimes and suicides. If you actually count up the words, if you look at uh, possible words he used that talk about possible harm from guns crime, criminal, criminologist, homicide, murder, rape, robbery, and victim. He uses the words, those words a, whole, a total of 109 times in 44 pages. Uh, in addition, just the term suicide was mentioned uh, 30, 13 times in it. So here's one question that um, I think kind of summarizes a lot of this new material uh, that, we ha- that I have in the book. And that is, if you're talking to somebody like Paul or somebody else who's supporting gun control, I suppose the question I would ask them is just to name name one place around the world where we've had a gun ban and murder rates have gone down. Name one place around the world that we have crime data for and murder rates have stayed the same, because I can't find them. And, um, you know, uh, uh, every place that I've been able to look at the crime data for, uh, you see Uh, you see murder rates go up and many times often by significant amounts. Now, usually the response, you you know, Americans know about, and I'll show you the data on Chicago and Washington, D.C. I'm going to focus a little bit more on that at the beginning of this because of the Supreme Court decision coming up in the next week or so. People know about what's happened to the murder rates in Washington, D.C. and Chicago, how they've gone up fairly dramatically in both cases after the ban went into effect. And the response is usually, well, that's not really a fair test. And the reason why it's not a fair test is that you only have the bans in those jurisdictions. Criminals can go and get guns from other places. You really need to have these rules much over a much larger area because, you know, here they go to Maryland or Virginia or they go to the rest of Illinois or Indiana. Uh, you know, Mayor Daly often blames the problems on the fact that, The rest of Illinois doesn't have the same types of gun laws that uh, Chicago has. And so uh, it's too easy for criminals to go and get guns from other places. I suppose my responses are twofold. The first response is if it's really an unfair test, it would have been useful to have had somebody say this when they were arguing for the laws to begin with. But secondly, uh, it's not just... Washington D.C. and Chicago. As I say, you look around the world, now people can say, well, you know, you look at each case and maybe you can come up with a different story or explanation for why something went wrong in each of those other cases to cause the murder rate to go up. Uh, but the thing is, it's just not, you can look at island nations, nations that don't have some neighbor next door that they can go and blame for the access to guns. That have, you know, they're an island. They have relatively well-defendable borders that are there. It's not like there's a highway. You know, I guess you have boats, obviously, that people can bring in, but uh, you, know, you can guard against smugglers, I guess, relatively easy if you have an island. And, uh, and yet you still see the same experiences in those places, often very dramatic increases in murder rates after, uh, after those uh, uh, rules are passed. So I'll just show you some things from uh, uh, D.C. to begin with. Now, I'm going to compare, first of all, D.C. to other cities, the other 48 largest cities. I don't include Chicago because it's also one that uh, imposed a ban. D.C.'s gun ban went to effect in February 77. Uh, and I'm just going to show you the period uh, from '74 up through '87, because after '87 you're going to see things explode. You have the crack cocaine ep- epidemic, and so I just want to look at it here. Plus, the later changes are so huge that even though these are big changes, they just disappear. You, you know, you you so you look at this. You go from something that's about uh, 10. So DC's murder rate was about 10% higher than the average uh, in. Uh, the year prior to the, the law actually going into effect. And you can see here it's about 40% over all this time, you know, many times 50%, ends up 80% higher at the end of this period here. Now if you extend the period out, you can see it's harder to see the changes, even though it was you know, uh, went from almost the average to 50% above, you know, it's hard to see it here compared to the changes that happened here. Now here's the thing: crack cocaine affected lots of places, but it seemed to have a much worse impact in Washington D.C. Uh, than than it did in other places. And this is just, this data goes out to about 2005. <clears throat> now you can compare it not just to relative to other similarly sized cities; you can compare it to uh, the averages for Maryland and Virginia. Uh, you can see there's not one year afterwards uh, where. Uh, D.C.'s murder rate uh, relative to those others was as low as it was when the laws got passed. You can see the further out period. You can compare it to the U.S. rate as a whole. And this is for the whole period out. Now, um, we've had some crime data now after the D.C. decisions come in. Now, I want to say I think there's two parts to the D.C. decision. People really have almost focused exclusively on one part of it and that is uh, getting rid of the handgun ban. Uh, As at least one or two people in this room can tell you, there's still a huge number of restrictions. Uh, D.C. has still banned many handguns. The Supreme Court decision said they could not, it was unconstitutional to ban an entire class of guns such as handguns. So they say, well, we'll just ban all semi-automatic handguns because it's not all handguns that are there. And, And there's fees and other things. There's probably only a couple thousand people now that have permits in Washington, D.C. The other part of the law basically struck down the as unconstitutional the gun lock requirements. And I think that was really pretty major because there are a number of long guns in the city. And literally, if you read the law the way it was written prior to the Supreme Court decision, it was illegal for you to have a gun loaded and operational even if you were using it in self-defense, <clears throat> and um, uh, but so what's happened after the Heller decision here? You know, as Tim was <laughs> mentioning before, you can find all sorts of quotes from uh, Chicago Mayor Daley, from Mayor Fenty, from others, predicting huge increases in murder rates that were going to be occurring in the city here after <clears throat> the ban. Um, uh, was was eliminated last year, 2009. So the decision was in 2008. In 2009, DC's murder rate fell by 25 percent. Went from 186 murders in 2008 to 140. It translates to a murder rate that is now down was then down to about 25 per hundred thousand people. That's DC's lowest since 67. Nationally, the murder rate fell by about 7.2 percent. So it's about three times greater, more than three times greater than the national drop. Excuse me, John. Yeah. We're recording. <coughs> I'm Stay sorry. next to the mic. <coughs> okay. Uh, so uh, anyway, so I just decided to go through D.C.'s crime rate data the other week. I was going to do more on this, but some other things intervened. The, uh, and um, you can see this is for the period of time from January 1st to June 8th by year from 2007 through 2010, so it's this year. And you can see, if you compare the period right before, you know, from 2007 to 2008, the first half of the year, you know, again, the decision was in June 2008, murder rates were flat in D.C. didn't change. The next first half a year afterwards, compared to 2008, it had fallen by about 26%. And so far this year, it's fallen by 20%. So that means over two years, if you just compare the first half of the year so, you know, you have the same time period there because murder rates vary over the course of the year. It's murder rates fallen by 40% since the elimination of uh, the handgun ban here in the city. And you can look at all the crimes. Violent crime as a whole has fallen, the murder rate, is about one of the biggest ones. But the interesting thing is also look at the different types of crime. You know, sex abuse falls, false, but not as large as, as murder. But robbery, excluding a gun, and robbery with a gun. What's fallen more? Robbery uh, with a gun uh, has actually gone up slightly. Robbery, uh, robbery without a gun has actually gone up. Robbery with a gun has fallen uh, significantly. And then you look at assaults, excluding a gun, uh, assaults with a gun, you have uh, you have about a four times bigger drop with assaults with a gun after the elimination of the handgun ban than you had otherwise. So it's interesting. Now you look at Chicago here. Chicago, this is just looking at other top ten cities. Chicago's murder rate was falling very clearly up until the time when the ban went into effect. And then there's not one year afterwards where its murder rate relative to the other top 10 largest cities was as low as it was before the ban went into effect. And uh, if you look at the top 50 cities, again, excluding DC, like we did for uh, Chicago, uh, Chicago's murder rate was falling relative to the other large 50 cities prior to the ban, and then rising afterwards relative to them. This is relative to the five counties that are adjacent to Chicago. Chicago's murder rate was falling relative to the adjacent counties prior to the ban. Uh, Illinois has a history of not always reporting its data, even murder rate data sometimes to the FBI properly. And so the FBI doesn't record their data for one year there, but you can see uh, it seems to have r- risen significantly after the ban went into place. And this is relative to the United States as a whole, similar pattern. Now, you, I mentioned some island nations. You can look at Ireland, whose ban went to effect uh, in 72. Uh, you know, murder rate was fairly flat right up until the time the ban went to effect. You can look at Jamaica, whose ban went into effect at the end of 74. Uh, you know, uh, murder rate in the last year prior to was about 9 per 100,000. Right now, it's bouncing around uh, 60 per 100,000. And uh, you saw uh, Breyer talking about uh, suicides. It's true, uh, gun suicides fell after the DC ban, but uh, non-gun suicides also fell. And if you take the ratio of the two, uh, the percentage of suicides with guns from 1960 to 2004 uh, for the District of Columbia, it's really hard to see any impact on the rate of gun suicides as a result of the ban going to effect. Again, one can go and say, unless you had the ban every place, maybe you wouldn't have had that effect. Now, um, how much time do I have? Uh, 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 so, uh, so, OK, so let me spend a little bit of time on the right to carry stuff. There's assault weapons ban stuff, lots of other stuff I can go through here. Uh, and as I said, there's about 200 more pages uh, in this edition, third edition relative to the second. There's been a lot of changes over the three editions in terms of states that have right-to-carry laws. In the first edition, I was basically able to look at 10 states that had changed their laws from 77 through 92. In the second edition, I was able to look at 20 states that changed their laws from 77 to 96. In the third edition... Now, we had 29 states that changed their laws from 77 through 2005. There's since been three other states. You've got Kansas, Nebraska, and I should mention Iowa, though Iowa was an extremely liberal uh, uh, discretionary state. And I mentioned about the permit changes. Uh, it's probably too small to see, so I'll just skip there. One easy question to go and look at, and this is probably one way I anticipate we're going to have some debate, and that is... Uh, on the behavior of permit holders. And uh, uh, I would argue, by any possible measure, permit holders are extremely law-abiding. And I have examples from 20 states in the text. I have other states in the footnotes that I go through there. And what you see time after time is basically what you have here for three states. Arizona, there were 99,000 active permits as of December 1, 2007. Over the previous year, 33 permits have been revoked for any reason. That's a rate of three hundredths of one percentage point. In Florida, between October 1st, 1987, and May 31st this year, uh, almost 1.8 million different people have been issued permits. Many of those people have renewed their permits multiple times, on average about 2.2 times each, meaning that they had permits for at least 12 years. <coughs> Only 167 had had their permits revoked for any type of firearms-related violation. That's about one hundredth of one percent. Uh, over the last 29 months, since January 2008, three additional permit holders have had their permits revoked for an additional firearm-related <coughs> defense. That comes to an annual revocation rate of, of <coughs> 0. .00017%. And I would go and argue it's pretty hard to find almost any other group in the society that has that low revocation rate. Now, what I want to try to do, just take a minute, because uh, the Brady Campaign, the Violence Policy Center, put out this report about CCW killers. And they claim that over the last three years, there are 96 killer permit holders accounting for 166 kills. Seven of these permit holders are said to have killed law enforcement. First of all, 51 of these 96 cases are, quote, pending, and, uh, and the, the major- vast majority of those cases, charges haven't been filed. What happens is m- many times, by no means all, when a permit holder uses a gun in a public place to defend themselves, they'll be arrested just as normal process, just until an investigation occurs. That in no way implies, really, that the person did something wrong. In fact, in the huge, overwhelming, almost all the time, these guys are going to be released and have no problem. You know, Even if they go to grand jury uh, and charged, uh, they'll be, even in the few cases where that happens, the charges will be dropped. <clears throat> Other cases, I think, unfortunately, have frequently been inaccurately described. Again, I was going to do <clears throat> more work on this, But uh, the worst state by far is Florida, according to their claims, which is said to account for 17 of the 96 cases. The next worst state had 10. And Florida supposedly had two of the seven uh, law enforcement cases. Of the 11 pending cases, seven never had charges filed. Uh, In the three convictions that they had, one case involved a boyfriend accidentally shooting his girlfriend No evidence of arguing. He was apparently showing her how to use the gun rather stupidly. uh, But he was convicted of involuntary manslaughter, which is pretty much about the lowest charge you can get on this. It's just basically saying an accident occurred. Uh, And in the other case where there was uh, a conviction, the prosecutor acknowledged that the person in some way was defending himself. The question was, had he done enough to stop the altercation that was there, And uh, the prosecutor said people can look at the tape and interpret it in two or three different ways. The other three cases involved suicide. Now, if I could just go through the four cases which are pending, where charges have been brought, you get a rough idea of what's going on here. And the first one uh, involved a police officer being killed. The person was obviously guilty, I have no problem with that. But if you actually read through the case, the articles on it, the person was charged with carrying a concealed handgun if you're charged with carrying a concealed handgun, there's no way you can have a concealed handgun permit. And um, so the person was incorrectly identified as having a concealed handgun permit. In a second case, also involving a law enforcement death, uh, James Wander was charged with the death of an off-duty customs border uh, agent, Donald Pettit. Pettit had engaged in road rage, cutting off Wander on the street. Wander had pulled into a parking lot Pettit had driven by the parking lot, had to turn around and come back into the parking lot where he had no business that he was planning on doing. And I could go through other details of the case, uh, but the Sun-Sentinel newspaper wrote in one of the stories that was cited by the Violence Policy Center and the Brady campaign but not quoted in their analysis is that local lawyers, uh, apparently they had interviewed like a half dozen local lawyers, defense attorneys about this, Said Wonder may be able to make a strong claim under Florida law that it was in his rights to shoot Pettit. So this is one of the pending cases, and the problem is, is that most of these cases are exactly what you want to have happen with defensive gun use. It's the reason why we gave people these permits, and it doesn't even include the other cases. Now, I'm not going to go and claim, and there are two other cases we'd go through if we had time, but uh, basically they're very similar. And uh, now I found between 1990, thank you, and 2008, I found 23 cases. It may be a little bit fewer, but I erred when I couldn't be completely sure in a couple cases to assume that a murder had been committed, and the person had been convicted of using a firearms in a murder who was a permit holder. <clears throat> From 1990 to 2008, three other cases involved convictions with no prison time, But they give you an idea of what some of these types of convictions are. For example, in Oklahoma, there was a case where a 67-year-old man had gotten out of his car at a parking lot, uh, was attacked by a robber, was struck, knocked down, uh, got up. The robber was chasing him around his car. The robber knocked him down and hit him a second time. The 67-year-old man got up tried to run away. The robber knocked him down and struck him a third time. At that point, the 67-year-old man pulled out his permanent concealed handgun and fatally shot the robber in the chest. Now, <clears throat> he was convicted. No prison time was assigned, though. But they wanted to sh- send a message that people should go as far as possible in t- before having to use deadly force. It's one of the reasons why states have been passing these stand-your-ground type laws. <clears throat> I had mentioned. So, anyway, obviously, I'm not going to have time to go through how the laws have changed over time or overview of previous evidence and how the empirical data sets up here or all the things that are controlled for literally thousands of different factors, <coughs> besides worn out anyway. But the, uh, you can see here, if you just look at the new data, this is graphing out the year by year changes that you see in uh, violent crime rates after trying to account for lots of other factors, uh, how they change before and after right-to-carry laws are adopted. And you can see this is for murder. You can see for rape. You can see for robbery. It's not as clear of a pattern there if you look at the year-by-year, year, but generally overall if you look at trends and aggravated assault. Now, <clears throat> um, you know, there have been a, I'll just. Make this point there's been a lot of empirical research on this there 's been several dozen academic papers that have used the type of national data that i 've looked at and about and I go through the papers in the book about two thirds of the refereed academic papers find a similar drop to what I have some of them find even larger drops than what i 've found um, and then you have about a third or so that uh, claim to find either no statistically significant drop or uh, maybe even just small small benefits. There's no refereed article uh, by either an economist or criminologist who has found a bad effect from these types of laws. And, you know, it's pretty hard to think of many empirical debates. We have a couple people who have been involved in this room in academic empirical debates in the past. Where you can go and find empirical debates you know on the impact of money supply or God knows what where you're not going to at least find some people some peer reviewed refereed articles that take opposite sides of these debates and um, and so I think this is kind of uh, kind of amazing and interesting at least to me as an academic now uh, the uh, uh, but you know I, the basic points that I was trying to make to begin with, that, um, uh, you know, it's the type of people who benefit the most from these laws and uh, basically who are the most vulnerable people in our society continue to be the ones that I find benefit the most. And again, we've only barely scratched kind of the, a lot of the conclusions I've been able to get, but I greatly appreciate being invited here again and, and for your time. Thank you. Okay, thanks,
0: John. Um, Since the Supreme Court came up once or twice, I want to just take a moment to clarify the action at the Supreme Court. Two years ago, there was a landmark case called Heller where the Supreme Court invalidated the gun control restrictions in the District of Columbia. But there wasn't really any much debate about whether or not the Second Amendment applied to the federal government. The D.C. has a unique status because it's a federal enclave, is what we call it, because it's under the jurisdiction of the federal government. So there wasn't much debate about whether the Second Amendment applied to the federal government, but there was a dispute over the meaning of the Second Amendment. So the Supreme Court came down and said the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right, and it invalidated uh, the gun control restrictions from the District of Columbia. Now, the next step in the debate is whether or not the Second Amendment applies to state the states and localities. That's why Chicago is now before the Supreme Court. Does the Second Amendment apply to uh, states and cities around the country like um, Chicago? And if the Supreme Court invalidates uh, the gun control ordinances of Chicago, as many Supreme Court experts expect that they will, that's why we're going to be seeing more challenges brought in perhaps other cities in uh, coming months and And years. So, with that clarification, let's turn now to our second speaker who has a very different perspective uh, on these issues. Uh, Paul Helmke is the president of the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence, which is the largest grassroots organization that advocates uh, gun control legislation. Before joining the Brady campaign in 2006, he practiced law in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And he was actually the mayor of Fort Wayne for 12 years between 1988 and 2000. And as mayor, he received national attention for his policies that reduced crime, reduced taxes, and for his effort to revitalize the downtown area of that city. He earned his undergraduate degree in political science from Indiana University and his law degree uh, from the Yale Law School. And his bio actually says that – or shares with us that he was in the same law school classes as Bill and Hillary Clinton. One of the interesting things about Bill Clinton, I think, is that although he pushed for gun control while he was president, he acknowledged the political costs involved with some of the gun control uh, uh, restrictions. When the Democrats lost control for the first time uh, of Congress in like 50 years in 1994 – Bill Clinton acknowledged that it was, it was the, the gun control uh, restrictions that he had pushed that led to that electoral setback. And I think there's a lot of debate about whether or not Al Gore lost the close election with, with President uh, or George Bush in 2000, whether uh, his uh, advocacy of gun control perhaps cost him that close election. That's something that uh, political analysts uh, still argue about. But in any event, would you please welcome our second speaker, Paul Helmke.
2: Um, thank you Tim. Thank you, Cato, for inviting me um, it 's great to be here it 's always good to see john i I, I wonder uh, about his uh, risk assessment uh, coming here after having had a, a burst app appendic- uh, <laughs> appendix of friday that's uh you know uh, but I, I salute him for uh, for his t- uh, tenacity um, with regard to the uh, intro i I, 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 I was elected mayor as a Republican. I ran for U.S. Senate as a Republican in Indiana. And I always caught flack on this Bill Clinton being in, in the class thing. You know, if I left it out of the bio, they thought I was trying to hide it. If I put it in, they thought I was. And, you know, I would always point out Clarence Thomas was a year behind. Sam Alito, two years behind. Robert Bork was one of my favorite professors. Um, you know, finally got down. I just said, if I'd known Bill Clinton was going to be in my class, I would have gone to Harvard instead. I'm sorry. It, um, uh, it, um. I am I'm not a statistician I'm not an academician I I read the the the, the book including the footnotes uh John and uh you know, it, it's—I'm sorry, my eyes glaze over on some of this—and I—and I, I, John actually does a very good job of trying to put it in, in understandable English. It's just—it's—it's it's not easy, um, and you know, part of it to me is—is is I always, as, as a mayor, I think, uh, am a little suspicious on on the expert who comes in with the statistics that here's what they say and here's what you've got to do. I mean. Clearly you know I'm not a luddite i'm going to listen to that i'm going to evaluate that, but I try to take into account you know what real people are doing and saying and how it, how it seems to work in the real world and you you always do look at statistics it's part of it too i I, I know that in selling books or in in publicizing an issue uh, more guns less crime is 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 catchier than more guns less crime uh, more guns less some crimes, sometimes some places. That's just, you know, even though, in effect, the qualifiers in John's book point out that some crimes did go up, uh, larceny, I think it was, in some places it didn't have the effect. You know, that's not quite as catchy. So when you're the policymaker, you really have to look into a lot of those issues to, to see what's going on. You also look to see what the other competing academicians say. And, and as John uh, said, they keep arguing about this. Uh, uh, the last panel I think I was on with John was uh, was also with John Donahue from Yale Law School and uh, Gary Kleck and uh, the police chief from Seattle. And you know they 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 both sides start arguing. This study said this, no, that study said that, and this conference said this, and that conference said that. Again, you know it, it's it's it, it's fascinating, it's interesting, it's important, but it's 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 competing academic claims, and you've got to try to look at the other reports to see what's being controlled for and what's not being controlled for. Um, the, there's one statement in John's book that, that, that caught my eye statistically, and at some stage I, I, I think John was questioning some competing study or some competing information, and he, and he says, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, if, you've, if somebody's slipping a coin 20 times and it's coming up heads uh, uh, 70 to 80% of the time, that means you should bet on heads. Um, and I, I stopped and thought, you know, f, you know. Actually, I think most people would assume that it was more likely to come up tails then because it's going to regress to the mean. Actually, it's fifty-fifty, regardless if it's been twenty flips or a hundred flips. You know, the, the the odds of any specific coin flip coming up heads or tails is always going to be fifty-fifty. Um, and unless what John is claiming is, is is that the numbers are stacked or that it's a two-headed coin, and that's the problem with statistics. It's it's you know, you either question the validity of the statistics, or you draw incorrect conclusions from them. And that's again why it makes it tricky. It's 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 even on the the DC information. Uh, you know, as as a mayor, I keep looking at the factor. Let's see, when was Marion Barry mayor, and how does that? You know, it's things like that um, do have an effect on on crime statistics, on policing statistics. I know when I was president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, it was real tough to sit. Uh, there when the mayor, when we were having discussions of drug policy and the mayor sitting up at the front table, Mayor Berry sitting at the front table. It just other things uh, affect life. It's uh, uh, As for the it, recent experience in D.C., I, I, there's an interesting uh, article by Kathy Lanier, the police chief that was in the Washington Times just um, last Thursday, I guess it was talking about the statistics. And she's, she's proud that uh, the crimes have gone down, but she points out that their homicide closure rate is so much better. They're, uh, uh, they've, they're doing a lot of things more differently. They're getting into the cold cases. Um, and then she points out that, you know, despite, as, as John alluded to, but there were 70,000 guns registered before the Heller case. There have been 900 handguns and semi-automatics that could not have been registered before that have come in since that time. Um, there's only been 50 applications that have been denied since Heller, apparently. There's a lot of other factors that go into this. She does point out that the only crime that has increased in the past 12 months is home burglary, which might mean that if there's an idea that there's guns there, they're becoming a target for thieves who want those guns. And the whole argument that you've got all these other crimes going down, you know, in John's book, they go down because of concealed carry permits. D.C. doesn't allow that, so how are guns in the home causing all these other crimes to go down? I don't know. Maybe there's an answer, but it just shows it's tough figuring out the causation on that. Part of what John's book argues, in effect, is that, you know, not in D.C. but maybe in in back in Indiana, that if we were talking to a group and he's and he basically argues that if one extra person gets a concealed carry permit, there are going to be five less murders in that state or that community. And I'm I i do not know about the exact numbers, but that's part of the argument. And part of that doesn't always quite hold true for me. It's 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 again because you've got to figure out the causation factors. In the book, a lot of times John talks about the correlation between the numbers. I can accept that. The causation part is the tricky part for me. Let me just touch on a couple points real quickly. I'm not here to defend gun bans. Uh, that's uh, that's history basically. Um, the Heller case has been decided. Uh, Dick Heller is here. It's uh, you know that's that's something. Uh, you know, that's uh, folks that wanted to argue about that. At some level, to me, it was they were arguing about how many angels could dance on the head of the pin. It, uh, it, D.C. and Chicago were the only cities, basically, that were doing this. D.C. no longer does it, and after next week, Chicago's not going to be doing it. I mean, people are going to be shocked if Ch- Chicago uh, wins the case. Uh, in fact, Brady, we didn't file a brief in support of Chicago. We filed a neutral brief stressing that uh, we felt the restrictions that Justice Scalia talked about in Heller were important to reemphasize and to talk about the standard of review our goal and i think all of our goals is we want less crime we want less gun violence we want uh you know less gun suicides we want you know we those are all positive things when we talk when we talk at brady about gun control we don't talk about gun bans that's not what we're pushing maybe in the past some of our people did that's not what we're pushing we're talking about what we consider the scalia endorsed restrictions uh, to try to make things safer. And Justice Scalia just briefly talked about how it's permissibly, uh, presumptively lawful to have restrictions on who gets guns and where they take the guns and what kind of guns are sold and how the guns are stored and how the guns are carried, those sorts of things. So that's where we're going to continue to have a lot of legal debates, but those are the sorts of things we're looking at. Basically, we want to make it harder for dangerous people to get guns. There are some people, not perfectly, but there are some people that you can predict are going to be dangerous. If they've been dangerous in the future, with a felony record, with uh, being, ex- exemplifying dangerous mental illness, those are people you don't want to have guns. That's why we pushed, and then why our signature issue is Brady background checks. Because uh, if we all agree that uh, we don't want dangerous people to get guns, how do you find that out? best way to do is through a background check. And those generally now work fairly quickly. Most people can go through a background check in less than eight minutes. And, um, you know, it moves, you know, that's like 98% of the checks. That's how it goes. It was, it, I'm not sure if I'm reading this chart accurately. And I think it's from the second edition in the book. But it looked like there was even a stronger correlation between the Brady law and a drop in violent crime than there was between concealed carry permits and a drop in crime. Now, most of those, I I think, were in one category, not uh, across the board, but it again shows how things like the Brady Law, uh, doing background checks, are are important things to look at. John, in the new book, talks about other things like restrictions on military-style assault weapons, gun trafficking. Those are things, too, that part of the idea is how to make it harder for dangerous people to get guns. It's uh, his, the footnotes in this book have conflicting information in terms of the number of gun shows and whether gun shows have gone up or down. John's correct in the book that gun, there's, it's not really a gun show loophole. It's a loophole that private sellers who oftentimes sell at gun shows can sell guns. One of the things we point out with that is if you're not doing background checks, you make it easier for dangerous people to get guns. You make it easier for traffickers. When you talk about one gun a month laws. And I'm not hung up on what the number is, but when someone goes in and buys 85, the same make and model at a a gun store uh, from a gun dealer at a gun show in Dayton, Ohio, is anyone shocked what this person does with them? You know, they're not doing it for personal collection. They're not doing it for personal protection. They're going to sell it out of the trunk of their car. Which is what James Bostick did, and which is why people ended up dead throughout the Northeast for the next uh, next year or so after he did this. Now, when you ask those people, "Did you buy that from a gun show?" They're going to say no. They bought it from James Bostick out of the trunk of the car. Who picked up the 85 uh, weapons at the at the place? So those are the sorts of issues we're looking at. We're looking at: Do you really think it should be legal? Which apparently it is now to take a 50 caliber sniper rifle and set it up at Gravelly Point, right in the flight plan. ...for the airplanes to take off and land at Reagan. You know, it's now legal to take guns to national parks. It's legal to take loaded guns to national parks. Fifty caliber sniper rifles are legal guns. They can shoot down the, uh, planes or helicopters that are, are on the ground. And if they're close enough and you've got the flight pattern down, they can shoot them. It's illegal to pull the trigger. Do you want to fly over that every day? Those are the kinds of questions we ask. Concealed carry permits. To me, the issue is who's getting the guns and how reliable are they? Uh, there's a lot of uh, contrary statistics and in, in, in information on how dangerous or not dangerous these people are. Um, it's hard to get hard data because you almost always just have to rely on newspaper articles. There's, uh, you know, If the newspaper article says they had a permit, then we think they had a permit. If it doesn't, <laughs> we don't know. Um, but uh, uh, Hassan, who shot the people up at Fort Hood, at one time had a concealed carry permit, not revoked. Uh, the person that shot the uh, three or four police officers in Pittsburgh Uh, when they came to his house, he had a concealed carry permit. Um, You know, his permit was not revoked, he killed himself. A lot of these people kill themselves before their permits get revoked. There's actually a number of multiple shootings, multiple killings by concealed carry permit holders. Hialeah, Florida, just a a few weeks ago, guy comes in, kills seven women, he's got a concealed carry permit. He commits suicide, um, so his permits not going to get revoked. So that rate stays nice and low. But we get to a certain stage, clearly, when you're giving out two Too many permits to too many people with less controls, and this isn't, I don't think, talked about in the book, when do you get to that tipping point when it becomes more dangerous? Last time John and I debated in, in New York, I said, you know, if you went to the Jets game, would you really feel safer if everyone had a gun? And most people who've been to Jets games probably the same as Redskins games, you know, laugh. And the response from the other side is, well, we don't mean everyone having a gun at the Jets game, who's drinking, et cetera, et cetera. But the catch is that means you're saying that there's a line when too many people are getting guns. And that's part of what we've got now. It's right now we're between, I think the book says... uh, 3% to 5% in in a lot of states in terms of concealed carry permit holders. Um, Once it gets to a a certain higher level, do things become more dangerous? Because it seems like we're seeing more and more shootings, particularly multiple shootings, uh, by concealed carry permit holders. Again, bottom line, I think we all want the same thing. I think it's important to argue the issues. I think it's uh, good to argue data. And uh, that's why I'm here today and happy to answer questions later on. Thank you very much.
3: Thank
0: you, Paul. Uh, Paul started off by saying, like, uh, he's not a statistician, and it's important to see what other statisticians have to say about John's thesis to find out which factors are controlled and which factors are not. I just wanted to mention that when we first started uh, planning this forum uh, uh, six weeks ago or a little bit more, We did start off by trying to find some other uh, academic uh, experts with a background in statistics to come and and comment on John's thesis. But for one reason or another, they they declined. But I just want to mention we did try hard to by contacting several statisticians to come because it is a a, a technical thesis. Um, But we do very much appreciate Paul coming to share his thoughts because we really wanted to get an exchange of views uh, on this subject. Um, With that said, our third speaker uh, is another well-known expert on uh, the gun control debate. I think you're going to find his talk interesting because although he is a defender of the right to keep and bear arms, uh, he will explain that his defense is somewhat different from John Lott's. Uh, Jeff Snyder's writings uh, tend to focus on the underlying ethical assumptions of the gun control debate, and he is best known for an article entitled uh, A Nation of Cowards, which was published in the Public Interest in 1993. Um, it was a powerful article. That's, one of the points that he made was that when it comes to the subject of crime, too much attention tends to be focused on government programs. He'll say that conservatives tend to talk too much about the need to build more prisons. There are complaints all the time about the leniency on judges, and liberals tend to, talk to uh, focus all of our attention on poverty uh, and racism in the criminal justice system as uh, the root causes of crime. Jeff Snyder wrote, it's impossible to discuss crime without talking about the moral responsibility of the criminal's intended victim. His argument was that crime thrives because uh, we are too often told that uh, when we're confronted with a criminal, um, we should not resist, we should not fight back. Instead, we should cooperate uh, with the criminal and submit to his demands. And for that reason, crime tends to thrive. Uh, Mr. Snyder argues that one who values his own life has a responsibility to fight back and resist. Now, I recall at the time that that article was published that George Will devoted two full pages in Newsweek magazine responding to uh, Jeff's article, because one of the things that Jeff wrote about in the public interest was he took to task uh, George Will for some of his comments in the gun control debate. And normally, George Will just has one page in Newsweek, but he took two pages to, to discuss uh, Jeff Snyder's uh, thesis. And that's one of the reasons it, it started. It generated quite a buzz uh, in Washington and around the country when that article was published. I also understand it's one of the the most requested and cited articles in the history of the Public Interest uh, Journal. In 1995, Cato published a paper by Jeff Snyder entitled Fighting Back, which was all about the concealed carry debate. One newspaper said it was... Uh, the Bible of the concealed carry movement because it contained a succinct discussion of the issues and knocked down mo- the most the most common objections uh, to the concealed carry laws, which were then sweeping the country in the mid and late 1990s. He writes a regular column uh, on law and the ethics of gun ownership and use uh, for the American Handgunner magazine, and a collection of those articles was published in 2001 by the Accurate Press. the The title of that book comes from his. Uh, most well-known article that I mentioned, the book is called A Nation of Cowards. So would you please welcome our third speaker, Jeff Snyder.
3: Thanks, Tim, for that introduction. Uh, Very kind. And thanks to Cato for inviting me. I'm also grateful to all of you for uh, this opportunity to share some of my views I hope you don't feel like uh, you're about to experience a bait and switch because uh, these gentlemen are here exchanging their their views on on public policy issues, and I'm really here to talk about um, a more a different issue, and that is uh, what does it mean when we make utilitarian arguments in favor of policy, and I want to point out some of the problems with that. Uh, let me get something going here. Yeah. Not working. Sorry. <laughs> Hold on. I'll try later. My clicking ability seems to be off. Um, when we discuss findings of social research, uh, the t- okay, of uh, the type we're having today, we expect to probe the validity of the findings as well as the Extent to which uh, we can reliably make claims based on those findings. Did murder and rape rape rates really go down because states enacted concealed carry laws and by how much? Uh, Can we honestly and to what extent do we have confidence in in making the causality claim? Um, The results are in and the question is really whether we can find the truth of the matter because it's a historical analysis. Um, But of course, we're not interested in history as, as a matter of mere idle curiosity. We're interested because of its potential significance for future conduct. And so some of us make the ready leap to the next level, which is to knowing what we know about the past, making a claim that, well, based on this, if we do this in other states, other states will experience similar benefits. So if we use that leap... Uh, to enact laws as or as a basis for laws in other states we 're implicitly treating the finding as establishing a relationship sufficiently that's sufficiently strong as can be sufficiently relied upon to change our laws and to achieve better outcomes in the aggregate, in the whole for all of society now in the gun control debate, the stakes are literally life and death, so it 's really easy to get caught up in debate about the numbers and their significance without ever stepping back and asking ourselves about the nature of this manner of making policy. And that is why I'm here today. I'm here to remind you that there are a number of material issues associated with leaping to utilitarian oughts on the basis of statistical ises and with utilitarianism as a foundation of policy. This is going to be a very uh, general discussion at a sort of high level, when we get to the mess of that is our lives, we tend to mix all these kinds of arguments, moral arguments, eth- uh, utilitarian arguments, and so forth. But when you separate the two different categories, they, they sort of logically proceed along different lines. And I think you really need to understand what those distinctions are. And I'm going to try to get to that a bit. Utilitarianism is a method of determining the good. Usually we mean a common or communal good by assessing whether the benefits associated with an activity or state of affairs exceed the cost. If they do, we approve it and we say it is to be preferred. Now, there are significant differences depending on whether you're looking backwards or forwards. If the cost-benefit assessment is made with regard to past events that have already occurred, we're really measuring the efficacy of past action. If, on the other hand, we use it as a basis for recommending or deciding a future course of conduct uh, based on claims of a future net benefit that we expect to receive, utilitarianism is then a consequentialist ethic. That is, it justifies future action by the goodness or desirability of the result we seek. For example, we might propose that banning handguns is justified because it will decrease suicides and homicides and result in less lethal violence overall. In that case... We don't say this, but what we're sort of admitting is that some people are going to lose their lives because they're going to be denied the opportunity to have defended themselves with a firearm when they might have been able to do that. But we might argue that this small number is an acceptable loss in light of the much greater anticipated benefits we expect from the number of live sieves and the, the substantial diminution in grave bodily harm to others as a whole. In this example, we see two critical features of the ethic at work. First, we have the problem of establishing how, in fact, we know what the future benefits and costs will be. Are these, costs, are these claims about future benefits reliable predictions? The question really goes to the heart of the ethic because if they're really more close to, if they're more educated guesses or mere hopes than they are scientifically predicated, uh, predictable results, then our justification which derives its force entirely from the fact that the outcome is a net benefit, is no justification because we really don't know if there's a net benefit or not. The second feature you can see in this example is that it clearly permits some to be, as it were, involuntarily sacrificed to save a greater number. So utilitarianism is a result-driven ethic. As such, it's distinguishable from ethics that are defined by means or manner of acting without regard to result such as the Kantian imperative to always treat others as ends in themselves and not merely as a means to an end, or the injunction to treat others as you would have them treat you, or the Fourth Amendment uh, requirement of a warrant for searches and seizures, or uh, the requirement of securities laws to disclose all material information. In non-consequentialist ethics, the outcome is valuable or left undetermined. In fact, it's technically beside the point. You may treat everyone as you would want them to treat you for years and years, and you may never experience a personal benefit from that, at least in a worldly sense, right? Uh, The requirement to obtain a warrant may result in some guilty people going free and so on. So it's not driven by result. It should be apparent from my general remarks here that nearly all of John Lott's work in More Guns, Less Crime is what I would describe as a a utilitarian evaluation of past events. Uh, So I'm not really here to argue uh, John Lott's findings or results, uh, nor am I here to take issue with with Paul Helmke's claims. Um, But I will argue that when you cross over from history to policy and use a utilitarian claim to support a policy, you're, you're playing a dangerous hand. If the evidence was clear that on balance, more guns did in fact mean more crime... I would guess that many in this room would not be arguing that we should base our laws on the numbers and override the individual right to have firearms for defense. So just as companies that are too big to fail are rightly derided for arguing uh, for for laissez-faire capitalism for their profits and socialism for their losses, uh, you ought not to be arguing individual rights when the numbers are against you and societal benefits when they're for you. Let's take a look now at uh, some of Jeremy Bentham's description of utilitarianism as a means of identifying a few other issues. Now, this was written in 1780, and of course, you know, we've all learned a lot since then, and uh, uh, so I'm not being, uh, you know, we could look at more modern utilitarian thinking, which is way more sophisticated, but I think this is sufficient to give you a feel for some of the issues. This is the way he begins his book. And uh, I want to draw your two, attention to two points here. Uh, first, utilitarianism is, is a creature of the Enlightenment. We see here an effort to found ethics on rationality and to make a science of felicity. We no longer will have to fight over subjective values of good and evil. Instead, we can make an objective determination based on a calculus, calculus of benefit and cost and make an arithmetical, fact based determination of what is felicitous and non felicitous that is capable of being demonstrated to anybody who's rational. Now, second, I want to draw your attention to a worm in this, in this apple. Despite the fact that, according to Bentham, pleasure and pain are our masters, we are evidently not very good servants because he proceeds to tell us that we should let them alone tell us what we ought to do. By this ought, we do in fact see that utilitarianism is an ethic. Uh, we have here a tacit admission that individual motivation is not fundamentally and automatically utilitarian itself, at least in a communi- communal sense but proceeds on a different basis and that we therefore need a guide or standard to which we should conform or regulate our behavior now it's not news that individuals are not naturally communal utilitarians we know that just recently for example several thousands brought ruin to the world's financial system impoverishing tens if not hundreds of millions for the sake of realizing multimillion dollar bonuses for a few years so but this, what this means, though, is that utilitarianism has the same problems dealing with individual motivation and incentive structures that every other ethic has. It's not better at it or necessarily worse at it. So it has the same problems dealing with motivations of those who make our laws. Perhaps the thought here was that if people could know rationally, objectively, and quantifiably what the good was, they would be more inclined to act upon it But there seems little reason to believe this is so. In this slide, uh, Bentham defines some of his terms. I I want to draw your attention here to the words in the first sentence, according to the tendency which it appears to have to augment or diminish happiness. That's quite a lot of wiggle room and hedging and a sizable escape hatch from accountability, and we should wonder why a rational objective calculus needs this much wiggle room and escape hatches. The use of appearance in particular suggests that the ethic has serious issues based on limitations of our ability to know in the future, as a tacit admission that our assessment of future outcomes may be wrong, and may be more in the nature of hypotheses to be tested than actual scientific predictions." As I mentioned before, if the benefit, in fact, is not a known quantity but a guess, then utilitarianism, in fact, has lost its justification because the outcome is the justification and we don't know what that is. We are really then just experimenting with people's lives on a trial and error basis. If you think that this is the best we can do, that might be okay with you. But in that case, prattling about the supposed future net benefits from the, from the policy is really just fraud in the inducement. It's hocus pocus designed to corral support and overwhelm the opposition with the appearance of a scientific result. Thanks. Next, I want to draw your attention to Bentham's reference to the interest of community. Who is the community? Is it selected based on our own tribal affiliations, or is the community itself defined by utilitarian methodology? If the question is whether the U.S. should go to war against Iraq, is the community for which we make the cost-benefit analysis the United States, the United States and Iraq, or the entire world? The more you expand the community, the more you see the problems in determining a future net benefit or loss. In effect, you can't do it without making all kinds of assumptions, hypotheses, and assigning values. And the claims become more transparently hypothetical and ridiculous and and more and more close to a mere assertion that it's right or wrong because we say it is or because we have transparently stacked the deck. But more importantly here, uh, we see that unlike some non-consequentialist ethics, utilitarianism does not aspire to universality. It permits parochialism and thrives best on narrowness. Of course, giving cynics their their due, it is possible to proclaim that this is mankind's one true non-hypocritical ethic, because it's the only one that honestly accepts the innate and inescapable, inescapable reality of our tribalism. Lastly, and. and uh, Bentham notes uh, that the interest of the community is determined by a simple summation of interest of the members of the community. This leads to our next slide. For aggregation, the components must be both commensurate and cardinally measurable. There's no basis for supposing either to be the case. Here, DeJasse pinpoints why the entire utilitarian calculus is impossible and nonsensical. Interpersonal comparisons can only be summed if we have a single uniform value scale that is universally accepted, and this is precisely what we don't have. As he puts it, the good of different persons is incommensurable. All utilitarian orderings involve the use of a value scale that has no necessary interpersonal validity. Accordingly, utilitarian findings of net benefits are really some groups' value judgments masquerading as rationally calculated facts. Bentham's hope to found a rational ethic based on objective quantified values and to thereby end internecine subjectivity is a mirage if utilitarian policies are implemented through law they're simply values imposed by one group upon another coercively through the political process under a pr cover or a self-delusion of an objectively measured and rationally determined common good try to wrap this up really quickly and i end with this quote because i think it's a nice summation of the problems with consequentialist ethics, um, such as utilitarianism. Um, a consequentialist, basically, de Jassi is saying here, it's, it's irrational or incoherent to, to ask to limit the scope of government if what you're seeking is the common good and the means to pursue that. Um, a consequentialist ethic must eventually destroy all non-consequentialist ethics, for none can withstand the lure of the desired outcome or or the withering scorn of an ethic that promises to deliver actual results, which we all want. Uh, I consider it a kind of Gresham's law of the ethical realm. Uh, an ethic that proclaims as good an action or state affairs that provides greater benefits than cost will inevitably steamroll concepts of individual rights or inherent dignity of individual human beings, because the only criterion is whether the benefits to be gained by doing so uh, exceed the cost. So a consequentialist ethic that proclaims safety or security as the greatest good will necessarily override things like uh, the requirement for warrants, uh, rights to speedy trial, and so forth. In short, concepts of individual right, dignity of individuals as ends in themselves and limited government must ultimately f- fall to a consequentialist ethic. And ultimately, those ethics will be used to justify totalitarian managerial authority in order to deliver and secure what we all consider as a common good. So I think that as, as, as when you look at these things, utilitarianism is certainly one of the more dangerous ethics available for use by the political system. Thank you.
0: Okay, thank you, Jeff. We are now going to return to John Lott, uh, give him an opportunity to respond to some of the things that have been said. This is going to be a very brief rebuttal round of about five minutes, and then we're going to take your questions and answers.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I guess before I get to Paul, uh, I just say something quick about Jeff. Uh, you know, uh, my role as an economist isn't going to talk about morals, but there's no there's no necessary utilitarian argument that I'm making. I mean, it's or saying that you can't include morals. There are costs and benefits of things, and you weight that against some other values that you have. So you may think it's good and innately for people to have guns, and you're willing to accept a certain amount of crime or not. And in, in this case, I think freedom and safety go together. But, you know, somebody on the other side of the debate may say, uh, look, even if it reduces crime, I just don't like the idea of people having guns. And they weight those things. I can't tell people how much weight to go and give to their moral values or not that's there. That's not my job. My job is just to try to give them some idea of the trail. off and the notion that we don't try to measure these things, I, I don't know how you make judgments on these things because no matter what your moral values are, at some point, if the cost be I you know, he says there's it's, it's not, there no empirical issues with uh, warrantless searches. If the costs become high enough, for me it would have to be really high cost, but if they became high enough, I assume almost anybody would say, you know, if it was like a nuclear bomb that's going to wipe out all of civilization or something like that, you'd say, "Well, in that case, I'm willing to give up." Uh, uh, you know, the protections you have for warrantless searches, but there's always a trade-off there. And but uh, uh, my notion and the notion of economists is to do what's called positive analysis. Somebody has to do it. I don't think I would imagine even many people's views are in some sense. Ba- their moral views are in some sense based in the back of their mind on, uh, on what they think the empirical issues are to some extent so I don't even think they're separate there now just turning to Paul uh, I always appreciate Paul taking the time to come and talk to me uh, talk with me about these different issues uh, uh, he's generally been uh, i mean, we may disagree on a lot of things but uh, he's always been one of the more pleasant people to talk about these different things I think uh, <clears throat> on the issue of uh, a ban, I think it is, you know, it's nice to know that uh, this is an issue that we're not central to the debate anymore, but I think it's still a useful tool because, you know, we all want to try to take guns away from criminals. It seems like what's the simplest way to make, try to make sure that guns are away from criminals? We can go talk about all sorts of different laws, but a ban, you know, if we ban guns, wouldn't that be the most obvious way of doing it? And it gets you to think about the question about who's most more likely to obey the laws. And I would argue that's the same type of question, the same type of analysis and trade-off that you deal with any of these different types of gun control laws that are there. You know, you know if I pass uh, a law that makes it more costly for people to do gun shows, how many fewer gun shows are there going to be? What's the cost for people having higher prices for guns if they're not able to go and get them at relatively cheap gun shows? And, you know, how much crime do I avoid, on the other hand, in terms of actually stopping criminals from getting it, or do they go and get it some other place, just like they would in the case of a ban? And I think how difficult you see it is to stop criminals from getting guns in the case of a ban gives you some idea generally how difficult it is for them to go and get it. Now, you know, on the Brady background checks, you know, again, I don't know of any study by an economist or criminologist that's actually found those background checks being related to reduce crime. My work, I don't know, maybe we can talk about it afterwards. I don't think my table shows that. But, the, uh, uh, but you know, I, I understand if it makes them feel better, I guess I don't see any harm necessarily. There's a cost to doing it and resources that you could have spent doing other things. You know, I think things like licensing and registration are much more costly in terms of police time that's there, you know, Hawaii for example, it spends like 50,000 hours worth of police time each year on their licensing and registration and that's 50,000 hours of real police effort that could be used on things that we know work with regard to police um, you know, with regard to the concealed permit holders, you know it's one nice thing you can do is, you can go in state of Florida, has a nice website many other states do for Florida you can just look up Google Florida Concealed Carry Statistics. You go right to their page where they'll have a lot of these types of numbers. You can look at it yourself. And I'll just mention one thing about newspaper stories. I mean, you're a lawyer. What, uh, if you have a client, he's innocent, and uh, uh, he gets arrested, what are you going to tell him? Are going to tell him to talk to the press? Are you going to talk to the press for him? And, uh, and a lot of these news stories... Don't, uh, because of that, even though the charges are never brought against the person, even that the possibility that charges could get brought that's the advice you're going to give your client that uh, <clears throat> um, are often fairly one sided and different from the story that the police are going to have. So, what you have is an initial story, and then you find nothing happens afterwards. It's because the police were told something more. Then what would be in the initial news report that would be there. I think that's about it. Thanks.
0: Okay. We're going to take your questions now. I do have three requests. Uh, when I call on you, please wait for our microphone to arrive so that everybody can hear your question. Second, identify yourself in any affiliation you may have, and please keep your questions brief so that we can get to as many people as possible. I'll exercise the moderator's uh, prerogative then and uh, ask the first question. Uh, Paul, uh, John, one of John's slides said, you know, questions to ask. Uh, are you aware of any jurisdiction where there's been a ban and uh, the murder rate went up? Went, went down. Went down, excuse me.
2: It's, we don't, like I said, we don't advocate for a ban. Uh, jurisdictions that have, uh, other countries that have strong gun laws have less gun violence than this country does. The statistics basically show... The more guns that you have in a home, the more guns that you have in a city, in a state, or in a country, the more gun violence you end up in those, those places.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess my point is you want to see what's the change before and after the ban, because these countries that may have relatively low murder rates also had low murder rates before, even lower murder rates before the regulations were put into place. And you know, there are lots of differences across countries. You know, England, for example, people point to, there's an excellent book by, Joyce Lee Malcolm, in 1900. I mean, it's mind-boggling how few gun murders there were. Twenty years before they had any gun regulations in Britain, you had two gun murders in London and five armed robberies in 1900. And, uh, you know, it's just so the question isn't is it low now, but how has it changed over time after they institute a ban? And I, at least the places we find data, I can't find a place where it's even stayed the same.
4: By
2: the way, basically, in, in, in England, you've got maybe 50 to 55 gun murders a year. Um, so when you hear about, you know, gone up X percent, you know, all it takes is one weekend's worth of shooting from the U.S. Uh, to happen or one incident in, in, in Britain, and you've got a 20 percent hike. It's uh, The numbers are so low that uh, the percent uh, difference doesn't tell you a whole lot. In that.
0: Yes, sir.
3: Thank you for the conference. I'm Jean-Baptiste Josso from the French think tank uh, Liberté Chérie. So in my country, France, the guns are banned. And um, as we know, cars don't make accidents, guns don't kill. People kill and, and drivers make accidents. So my question would be the most important thing in the United States must be not the gun, but the relationship between the people and the gun. And how do you think it could work if in a country like France we lose this relationship? with this relationship, we don't know how to defend ourselves with this, how will it work if we re-implement again, and uh, what would be your opinion on this point?
1: I don't know who you're asking first. Uh, Let me say something, because I think I agree with Paul on part of what the answer here, and that is, uh, um, you know, when people say, you know, it's people, not guns that matter, obviously people pull the trigger, but guns make it easier for bad things to happen. They also make it easier for people to protect themselves and prevent bad things from happening. So, you know, you can, if, just in the same way, we probably don't want to give people nuclear weapons because it makes it really easy for really bad things to happen, okay? But the, uh, but, but, so the qu- question to me is kind of, is at least partly, though I agree with uh, our, uh, other speaker about uh the moral issues that you have there but at least to me i you know so to me the question is what's the net effect a net to the presence of guns make it easier for people to protect themselves does it affect overall crime or not how how does it do it so you have this trade-off making it easier for bad things to happen and e- or easier people protect themselves and i think the big problem that you have is that when you ban guns, whether it be a gun-free zone or whether it be for a whole area, uh, uh, you, you the people who obey these rules are good people. So you take Virginia Tech. If uh, uh, virtually the rest of Virginia, you're allowed to carry a permit concealed handgun, can't do it in uh, in Virginia in this universities, and so. If I'm a student and I carry a permit concealed handgun on campus, even though I can carry it virtually anyplace else, you're going to get and get caught. You're going to get expelled. If you're a faculty member or staff that does it, you're going to get fired. If you're a student that gets expelled for firearms-related violation, you're not going to be able. You're very likely not going to be able to get a university degree anyplace else. If you're a faculty member who gets fired for firearms-related violation, good luck trying to get another academic job, and so your life's going to be unalterably altered as a result of that. So you can see the huge cost for law-abiding citizen doing it. But if a criminal goes and kills 32 people uh, on campus there and is already going to be facing 32 death penalties or 32 life sentences, even assuming he's going to live in, in that case, which in the vast majority of cases they don't, you know, the notion that somehow uh, the threat of um, expulsion is going to be the key penalty that's going to keep him from engaging the harm there just doesn't seem very credible to me. You know, whereas if the death penalties or the life sentences are what's going to do it. So I understand I understand kind of the thing, you know, putting making people ultimately responsible and I think that's a valid point but I think you also have to take into account that the tools can affect the reach or not of the people in those types of crimes and that's and that and you can't. And so, if I it were me, I would have if and I was on your side, you know, the side that you're making there, I would have I would have phrased it differently. I wouldn't have used that type of language.
2: Just real quickly, I'm I'm not an expert on what what French law is on this. Uh, I do have a daughter that lives in Paris. Uh, it's my understanding that uh, you can have guns in France, but uh, they're very expensive and and there's a lot of restrictions. But the gun violence is very low in terms of relationship between people and guns. You know, one one question I hear, or one comment I hear a lot, is that you know Americans are more violent. That's part of our, you know, history or culture or whatever. Um, I reject that. It's uh, in generally the statistics I've looked at American levels of violence on all other things are fairly even with the rest of the industrialized, at least Western world, um, except when it comes to gun violence. And there we're so out of whack with anyone else, and it's because we have so many guns. you know, my one comment is if more guns really cause us less crime, we ought to be the safest country in the world, and clearly we're not in terms of, of gun violence. The gun-free zone thing, just real quick, John does spend a lot of time in the in the new edition of the book on that, um, you know, first of all, none of the students that were in those classrooms that day had a concealed carry permit. So Virginia Tech saying they couldn't bring it on, bring it into the classroom, doesn't make a difference. Um, and it's part of the issue with this whole debate. When you're talking only two percent or three percent or five percent of Americans having concealed carry permits, if I'm a rational, utilitarian criminal. Um, I'm gonna figure, hey, what are the odds of uh, of there being anybody there? And actually, John does address that issue a little bit in the book, but I'm not sure people go through that that much of an analysis when you're talking about that small of a level. Um, and when you're willing to commit suicide, uh, it basically, it's, it's it's you know suicide bombers, suicide shooters instead of suicide bombers. You've got you've got something there. The other thing with this whole idea that shootings only occur in gun free zones ignores all the gun free zones where it doesn't. I mean, the, the the zones where people have guns. I mean, last year. Here we saw four police officers killed in Oakland. Um, the concealed carry permit holder I mentioned in Pittsburgh shoots the police officers. John mentions this shooting in Kirkwood, uh, Missouri City Hall, uh, where and John mentions that first he kills the police officer. but Actually, he killed the police officer, took the police officer's gun from outside the city council chambers, goes into the city council chambers, kills the other police officer in there, then kills the mayor and a couple others. Mayors get sensitive on these issues. He stopped. This is my lawyer he's stopped by the city attorney who throws a chair at him, and that is what stopped the the, the killer it's um, you know it's you know the the fact that there were guns there didn't stop the killer from coming in. The people with the guns aren't the one who stopped it. It was a tragedy, but these things happen other places A couple years ago here in uh, Northern Virginia, somebody went to a police station to kill people you know it's it's not total rationality on the part of these shooters all the time, and that's that's why you know, I agree, you need to look at more than just a cost-benefit analysis. You need to say what's, what, 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 what's right, what values are you holding. To me, it's you. laws are an important, I mean, liberty is an important value, law is an important value. You try to figure out how to, to balance these things to try to make something that's workable. And we're going to get it wrong most of the time. You work your way forward. Jeff, do
0: you want to comment?
3: No, not really. I mean, I just want, I would like to go back to one of the things John said about my presentation, and I essentially don't didn't disagree with anything he said. We all want to know facts. We all want to know what the costs and benefits are, and then we all make our own assessments of what value we put on those and what conclusions we draw for our, for our future behavior. Uh, I was I was really leading up to a fundamental point, which is that especially at least when you're restricting when you're restricting liberty and you're imposing, and we're making a political decision to impose these values on others you shouldn't be masquerading that this is a scientifically proven net benefit that you can demonstrate rationally to any human being in fact there's a value scale there's always a tacit value scale which not everybody agrees with and therefore you need to have sensitivity to the fact that you may be imposing your value judgments on others Uh, how we negotiate this in in daily life is quite, quite a problem
0: more questions yes sir
1: Uh, Breckall, uh, George Washington University. Um, this is for Mr. Snyder, actually. Um, in your critique on utilitarianism as being applied uh, to poly- policy decisions... Um, your One of your big arguments is basically that utilitarianism um, in some way requires a, a subjective um, opinionation of what is good, whether it's um, Bentham's pleasure, Mills, um, happiness, whatever, eudaimonia, I don't care. Um, regardless, th- don't you think that's as problematic for any non-consequentialist, say, like a de- deontological, consecetic categorical imperative, which basically, like, do unto others as you would have done unto you um, – will that how you would act to be universal law don't you think that in that decision that there is something that is a, a subjective opinion anyways that you can't really escape in any policy decision and if you haven't an answered that i guess um what would you recommend as a means of making policy then
3: wow well uh, i was actually anticipating in 30 seconds i was say, anticipating yeah. someone <laughs> would ask the first question the first question is You know, we believe in those kinds of non-consequentialist ethics because we think, you know, there's something to them. And you can always make the claim that there's really a hidden utilitarian calculus going on there as well, Uh, that on balance we think it's going to be better for us or mankind at some level. Um, And this is a a really fascinating issue uh, because basically any value you hold or, or, or any good you seek Achieves its justification by reference to some other value, and so on backwards into an infinite regress until you get to some final value that you absolutely hold as the final value. What people hold as final values is different. So, anytime you make, uh, anytime you make what is apparently a consequentialist condition, I mean, some non consequentialist condition, instrumental to something else, you start destroying it. So if you discover that the Fourth Amendment is about uh, protecting reasonable expectations of privacy, suddenly you don't need the warrants so much anymore. We have now gotten to a point with the Fourth Amendment jurisprudence in the Supreme Court that never before in history have we so successfully succeeded in achieving and protecting people's expectations of privacy and never before have we needed so few warrants. So by making it instrumental to something else, you've started destroying it. It really comes down to what, do, do you and I hold as our final values it's really I'm sorry it's where we transform from word to you got you got to live it to, to existentialism 101 it comes down to individual action and choice i can't I can't answer the second question i'm sorry <laughs> in the back
4: D is kan Institute. Uh, I'm glad we're talking about, about uh, utilitarian versus uh, uh, you know, principled uh, d- policy decision-making. Uh, and and I, I think it's not useful to use other societies sometimes. The British have repealed the protection against double jeopardy. Uh, I asked a Brit about this in the controversial trial, and he said, yeah, we got him, didn't we? Uh, and, and so I, I think uh, turning our back on uh, the principles can be dangerous. And Mr. Helmke, I know that you're a fan of uh, putting people on the FBI's uh, terrorist watch list. Uh, a prohibition against them purchasing handguns, uh, and potentially how the legislation shakes out, owning a handgun, um, treating them as if they had, had, they had committed a crime. At what point does 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 that uh, slip into sort of um, uh, being so prejudicial to liberty that it becomes a society that we uh, don't want to live in? It. At what point does that uh, that line of thought run out? Thanks.
2: Let I me. Mean, uh... Right now, you can be on the terrorist watch list, and actually, there's various versions of this list, and they call them slightly different things. Um, and you can buy a gun legally in this country if you're a U.S. citizen and you're not on the prohibited purchaser list. I'm not. I've never argued that anyone who's on that list should automatically be barred from buying a gun. But I've argued that. The Justice Department and our law enforcement authorities, if they see someone on that list buying a gun and they have reason above and beyond, you know, reasons of their own to think that's not just, you know, Ted Kennedy with the wrong name or the two-year-old that, uh, that you hear about in examples all the time, when they say that's really Osama bin Laden, you know, the third, and he's buying the gun, and while we have a right to, to track him, um, if we can find him, you know, there should be an ability to stop him from buying a gun, particularly in this country where you can buy pretty serious weaponry and you can buy an unlimited number of them. Uh, to say that there's no authority to stop the purchase at the, at the point of purchase, I think, is wrong. It's basically arguing that... Uh, you know, just as we go through the inconveniences of the metal detectors and the shoes off and the whole bit at the airport, um, you know, perhaps if someone is considered a real threat, even though he doesn't have a felony in this country, even though he hasn't been found uh, to be a danger to himself or others because of mental illness by a, ju- a judicial body in this country, um, you know, they ought to have the ability to stop him. That's the that's point I'm arguing, and that that is is a bit of a balance because it's a little more discretionary. The The bill that's actually, the bills that have been proposed on this have an appeal mechanism built into it, too, if it's the wrong name, if, if you feel you're being treated unfairly. But when you're doing that balance uh, in all sorts of things, the fact that, uh, again, you can have this high-powered unlimited amount of, of weaponry, that's a category I think uh, they, they, you know, I would come down on that balance where law enforcement can step in. And I don't, I don't feel that's going to change the, the culture and my sense of liberty in this country any more than what I already have to go through to uh, do so many other things post-9-11.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, if I had seen some evidence that background checks generally stop people from getting guns, I'd be more amenable uh, to to considering it. But uh, you know, <clears throat> if somebody's intent on going and committing some type of crime and they're willing to plan for it, I think it's very difficult to stop criminals from going and getting guns. And I'm not, and I think the type of people are most likely going to be inconvenienced are going to be law-abiding good citizens that are going to be there and not, uh, and not the terrorists who are going to be doing it.
2: Just, just, just real quickly, and I meant to say this earlier on the Brady law, it has stopped 1.8 million people from buying guns. Um, now, maybe some of those people went out and got them another way, but if we're looking at economic theory here and raising the cost for bad things happening, the more hoops that you make the bad guy jump through, um, uh, the more likely that bad guy is, gonna be, is going to fail in it. It's, it's going to be harder for them to get the gun. If, you're, if you've got a clean record, the Brady background check again takes you eight to nine minutes. Uh, but you, it, since it's been in there, 1.8 million prohibited purchasers have tried to buy a gun. When the Brady bill was, was up for debate in the, in the early 90s, the argument was the bad guy would never be so stupid as to go to some place that does a background check. Well, 1.8 million of them have.
1: Now I I, I got to respond to this. <clears throat> what what percentage of those 1.8 million were false positives? What point? What, what percentage of those 1.8 million were eventually cleared to go and buy a gun?
2: And, and John gets into this in, the, in his book, and we've got stuff on our our web to get into these discussions too. <clears throat> it it. To me, again, I'm willing to, I'm willing to go through an eight-minute, nine-minute background check if I think it's going to make it harder for the bad guy to get the gun. And, you know, the one issue that, that used to come up under the Clinton years is how come we don't arrest these people? Well, the Bush administration didn't arrest very many of them either. We ought to be doing a better job when you're getting someone who comes in and does a background check like happened recently in Maryland who's got an outstanding murder warrant uh, against them from Baltimore. They ought to be moving pretty quickly to arrest those people. Maybe they're starting to do that now. No, but
1: the reason why they didn't arrest them was because they weren't real criminals trying to go and buy the gun. If they had, they would have committed a crime, and the Bush administration kept on saying, if we caught these guys who were actually, if this $1.8 million, even the reason why you're only talking about, a th- you know, a thousands or so of these guys facing any type of crime is because that's closer to the actual number that actually were criminals that shouldn't have bought the guns.
2: I mean, one of the fascinating things we haven't talked about much today is where do the criminals – actually, John does touch on it in the book a little bit – where do criminals get the guns? And everyone says, oh, they don't get them from the gun shows. They don't get them from the corrupt dealers. They don't you – know, you know, where do they get them? They, they, they start out in the legal market. How do they get to the illegal market? I mean, they're, they're, that's something we ought to be asking and figure out how it happens. I mean, some of them come from those eighty-five sold out of the trunk. Uh, but, you know, again, when you've got uh, people that are prohibited purchasers buying guns, we should have resources to stop those. And police resources in every city and every state are stretched. And, and that's part of the problem that goes on here. I think the Brady law has been a good thing. And it's, it's something that, at least on page 200 of your book, uh, says it shows a uh, change in the average crime rate after the adoption of Brady law. Uh, violent crime drops 2.4%. Uh, that same chart shows a drop in, uh, in in crime rate after right-to-care law down 2%. You know, maybe I'm reading your charts wrong, but that's where I took the information from.
0: Okay, let's move on. I'd like to ask Paul to clarify something. When you use the phrase uh, gun violence, uh, the image that comes to my mind is is somebody using a gun to murder somebody. But I, I sometimes get the feeling that when other people use the term gun violence, they would in it's a broader definition that somebody who uses a gun in self-defense to shoot down somebody who's breaking into their home, they consider that to be an, an act of gun violence and something that we should be, all be concerned about. Would you clarify wh- exactly what when, do you mean by it?
2: When I talk about gun violence, it, and I, I, I don't really, you know, I, I've got no problem with justifiable self-defense in, 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 in the situation. Too many times when we talk about this, we don't talk about gun suicides. We don't talk about the gun accidents. In this country, we get about 12,000 people that are murdered every year with guns. We have about another 18,000 people that commit suicide with guns. Um, and another about 1,000 or, or I think about 1,000 that uh, with accidental shootings each year. On top of that, there are another 80,000 that are injured with guns every year. There's huge health care costs and trauma for those families and neighborhoods, communities year after year. So it's, that's what I'm talking about with gun violence. One of the things that John talks about in the book is trying to distinguish between homicide statistics and murder statistics because of justifiable homicides. Catches sometimes murders, the legal term. It depends whether you get off or not or whether they reduce it to manslaughter or not. Um, but, uh, when you look at the broader scope of gun violence, people that are killed or injured with guns, and again, you know, the, yes, we have to realize that some of those are justified or police uh, shootings, um, but we need to look at the full scope and, uh, it's pretty serious in this country.
0: Yeah. Uh, John, would you address that, uh, for people who don't read, uh, this literature, I, I,
2: uh, wants them fre- to read the book though so that, <laughs> or get the book at least i fre-
0: fre- frequently encounter the common argument I'm sure many people here have is the that statistic that uh, if a gun is in the home there more people are more likely to be injured by the gun in the home than they are to use it uh, in self-defense. Would you address that
1: you know, the more accurate way it's it's usually st- or the way it's more precisely stated is <clears throat> a gun is in the home is more likely to be used to kill you or uh, somebody else that you know than it is to be used to go and kill an attacker. And uh, it's basically from several studies that have been done by Arthur Kellerman and his co-authors where they would go and look at <clears throat> murders in a city or a few cities over a year or over a few years, depending upon which study you look at. <clears throat> and uh, what they'll do is they'll find somebody who died in or near residence. <clears throat> and then they'll ask the relatives of the deceased whether that person owned a gun. And they'll assume that if the person died from a gunshot and a gun was owned by that person, that it was that gun that was involved in the death. And then uh, what they'll do is they'll have a control group where they'll go and look at people who are the same age, sex, and race uh, who live with a mile of the deceased and ask those people whether they own a gun. And then they run a regression that essentially says, what's your probability of death based on whether you own a gun? They find a positive relationship. Now, there's lots of problems with it. One, a couple of them are just simple data problems. The first data problem is that is the assumption that if the answer to the first question, that did the person who died own a gun, that it was that gun that was used in the death. When Gary Clark went back and looked through the data, he found that even including suicides, 84% of those deaths were being improperly ascribed to the gun that was in the home. Uh, the 84%, or 84% of that number was actually due to weapons brought in from the outside. So it wasn't the gun that was in the home that was responsible for the huge majority of those deaths. Uh, the second problem is limiting the benefits to times where you kill somebody. Now, they also have one study where they include woundings. But, but the problem is, is that the vast majority of times, you know, 90-some percent of times, people use guns without killing the attacker without wounding him. In fact, uh, c- attackers are, are killed uh, fewer than one out of every thousand defensive gun uses. W- woundings may maybe about seven or eight times more frequent, but they're still a tiny fraction percent. So all the times of simply brandishing the gun, all the times of firing a warning shot, there's no value attached to that. So it's not saying, it's, you know, it's basically only counting as a benefit when you've actually killed the attacker whereas the benefit should be when have you stopped the attack from occurring. And so they're ignoring 90-some percent of the benefits that are there. So you can see on the one hand they've exaggerated at 84 percent of the deaths falsely attributed to the weapon. On the benefit side, they basically ignored 90-some percent of the benefit. Either one of those changes by itself would have reversed the claim that was there. And then I just mentioned one on causation. Imagine if you did the same study on the efficacy of hospital care, where I actually brought this up to Kellerman one time when I was debating him. I said, look, let's you and I do a study. We'll go and we'll find people who died in the city over the course of the last year. We'll ask the relatives of the deceased whether or not the person has uh, has been to the hospital. And then we'll go and find people who are the same age, sex, and race, who live within a mile of the deceased, and ask them whether they've been to the hospital. My guess is you're going to find a very strong positive relationship between going to the hospital and dying. Should we go to Congress then?
2: I try to stay out of hospitals.
1: (laughs) Well, I at least survived my last (laughs) visit. But but, the point is there's something different between those two people. That's obviously not the right test. You want two people who are equally sick and one goes to the hospital and one doesn't. Not two people, one who's well and doesn't go to the hospital, and one who's sick and does go to the hospital. That's obviously not a very useful comparison that's there. And so uh, you know, economists try to deal with these things in different ways, and I'm not going to talk about it, but you can just see there may be different reasons why different people own guns to begin with. So for example, maybe some of these guys were gang members that got killed, and that's the reason why they owned a gun. Or some people might have had something that made them attractive to be to robbers. And so you want to try, just as in the healthcare case, you'd want to try to make sure you have two equally sick person, one who goes to the hospital and one who doesn't. You'd want in the case of guns, you'd have two people who are equally at risk of having guns used against them, one who has a gun and one who doesn't. And what's the comparison there? Rather than comparing, you know, somebody who may not feel at risk at all with somebody who owned a gun because they did feel at risk.
0: Okay, I'm afraid we have run out of time, but everybody here is invited to the luncheon upstairs, and we can continue the discussion there. Please thank our panelists for a good discussion.